Good morning, Ridgeline. For those of you who don't know me, my name is David Morgan. I'm an elder candidate here at Ridgeline Community <laughs> Church. My beautiful wife, Elizabeth, and I um, have been at Ridgeline since the very beginning of our walk with the Lord. And this congregation has meant a lot to us, and we are glad that you're here. Um, we don't do this every week, but would you please stand with me for the reading of Acts chapter 12? Thank you. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him, made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. The sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the shell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel. He didn't know it was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When he had passed the first and second guard, they came to an iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Jer Herod and for all the Jewish people who were expecting. When he realized this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened and saw him, they were amazed. But motioning with it, to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. <clears throat> now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down to Judea and Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people shouted out, the voice of a god and not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give the glory Give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks. 
There are two predominant themes in this chapter. Opposition and expansion. The opposition and expansion of the church. And we also see at the end the jealousy and the justice of God served to Herod. John Stott says this about this rhythm of expansion and opposition that we see in the book of Acts. And it's real for us as well. It's not just history. But he says, indeed, throughout church history, the pendulum has swung between expansion and opposition, growth and shrinking, advance and retreat. Always, though, with this assurance that even the powers of death and hell will never prevail against Christ's church since it is built securely on the rock of Christ Jesus. Every time there is a surge in ministry and fruitfulness and growth and expansion and the Word of God increases, the kingdom of Satan and the world attacks. And so these two war against each other. I can remember in, uh, before I was a Christian uh, in high school, I sort of got into a group of uh, guys that were um, were Satan worshipers. And they would take us to this um, old burnt out pig slaughterhouse factory that was abandoned in the woods. Very creepy. We used to sneak through the woods and dare each other to throw eggs at the Satanists who would worship there and run. Um, and so we used to go there and spend time with these guys just being curious and mischievous. And... Brian, the two Brians, a guy named Joey, a handful of others. There was a very active satanic group within our our town. And I spent a lot of time with them in ninth grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, tenth grade, those kind of things. But then as the Lord began to work in my life, uh, and I began to hear the gospel and respond through a ministry called Young Life, uh, finally one day I became a believer uh, toward the end of my junior year of high school. And then my senior year, I really began to grow. I began to grow spiritually. I began to I be, became an FCA huddle president, uh, very active in my church, um, read a lot of scripture, started to grow a lot, um, had the privilege of praying uh, with 17 friends and family members to receive the gospel in that first year or so. And during that time, as the Lord was using me, um, I don't know if you remember what it's like to be 18. And it was a free read day, right, in our English class. And um, so it was a Friday, and, and I felt like I needed to read my Bible. And, and that was kind of a courageous, I think, decision for me at the time. It probably sounds silly to you to be in a public high school and to, to bring my Bible. But all these people had known me, and so they knew my former way of life. Um, and then they... they had seen me do this. So, so I did one Friday. I brought this Bible. And uh, I sat in the front upper left-hand corner of the, of the classroom. And the next week that I did that on the free read day, I noticed that, um, that Brian, Brian, and Joey all came up and sat diagonal beside me, uh, diagonal behind me, and then directly behind me. And they screeched their chairs close. And they all pulled out the satanic Bible and begin to open it and read it out loud uh, right there with me. And it was a real sense of opposition 
few months later, Brian saw me at a gas station. It just happened to see me pumping gas on one side, and he walked over as he was pumping gas on the other side. And, and he came up and pushed me a little bit, and he said, I heard you said you wanted to fight me. And he started to instigate a fight. And I said, you know, I didn't say that. And, um, and somehow, I think, as I tried to project some confidence <laughs> inside, I was kind of quivering a little bit, but... Um, but I, I confidently just said, you know I didn't say that, and then just didn't say a word and stood right there and looked him in the eyes. And I don't know, maybe 30 seconds, but it felt like five minutes in this tense situation. Uh, he sort of brushed my shoulder and said, all right, I know you didn't say that, and walked off. There are so many different stories I could tell that continued in that sort of saga over the next few years. Uh, anytime I would return, and even over the years, these guys will friend me on social media or they'll, they'll make remarks in my messenger or something like that. The point was, it was a battle and I was experiencing a little bit of what it's like to be on a, on a battlefield as a new believer with opposition. Two kingdoms opposed to each other. We are in a battle, and even though Jesus Christ won the war, your life is lived out on a battlefield. And if you're looking like Jesus, and living like Jesus, and acting like Jesus, and if you're in ministry with Jesus, you should expect opposition. Matter of fact, you should feel it um, unusual if you're not under attack. Now, I'm not talking about people picking on you if you're a jerk or have a bad personality or, or if you say something off color and people give you a hard time for that. Sometimes we pretend like persecution is persecution for Christ's sake when in actuality it may just be your, your personality. I, I, mean, I don't know who else is going to tell you that. Right? And I'm not saying it to you personally. I don't have anybody in mind like when I say that. But somebody should tell you, right, that, um, hey, they're not persecuting you because you're, you look like Jesus. I mean, they're persecuting you because, because of who you are. And, and so yet, we should experience some sort of opposition. Let's look at Herod's opposition. In verse 1, it says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Violent hands. He targeted the church for violence. Wasn't the first. Peter and James were uh, Peter and John were arrested um, and held in trial. Um, Stephen was martyred. Um, other believers uh, certainly were being persecuted. Paul was ravaging the church after Stephen's martyrdom, dragging off believers, seizing property, uh, taking them to the chief priests. It was a violent time. But Herod was a Roman king. His violence toward the church was motivated by a desire to remain in office. He's a political figure, a Roman puppet king. It's easy to get the Herods confused, right? Uh, if you read your New Testament, especially in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's easy to get the four Gospels, con I mean the Herods confused. There's Herod the Great, right? He's the king that we know that... Um, 
Uh, it's most famous for what's called the slaughter of the innocents when Jesus was born to Mary in Bethlehem. You remember from Matthew's story that, that Herod asked the wise men, where's he who was born king of the Jews? Report back and tell me and, so that I can also go worship him. And, and this Herod the Great, when the Magi were warned not to go back and report, uh, he went into Bethlehem and ordered the execution of every male under two years old. His nickname was the Butcher and the Builder. The Butcher and the Builder is Herod the Great. He expanded and renovated the second temple. Do you remember the episode when Jesus told the Pharisees, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days? What was their response? It took 46 years to build this temple. And will you tear it down? What did they mean, 46 years? Herod's incredible construction project lasted four and a half decades. He rebuilt the second temple. He built the fortress at Masada, uh, Caesarea, the Herodium, many other projects. But he was also a violent Roman client king. Upon his death, Herod the Great, The kingdom of Israel was divided into four parts. Each a son of Herod called a tetrarch. And you remember some of these. It was Herod uh, Antipas, one of his sons that had John the Baptist beheaded. You remember that story? Uh, His daughter danced in front of a dinner party kind of thing. And he said, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And he said... uh, She said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so he beheaded John the Baptist. Aristobulus was another one of the Tetrarchs. And when he was killed, they sent this Herod Agrippa in chapter 12, verse 1. They sent him to Rome to live in Caesar's household and to be raised and trained in royalty. And when Claudius, one of his schoolmates, became Caesar, he appointed his old friend Herod Antipas, I'm sorry, Herod Agrippa over the entire uh, nation of Israel again. This is the same one who laid violent hands on those who belonged to the church. But I want us to tie up Herod all at the beginning here. So skip down to verses 18 and 19. You'll see his violent tendencies. When the four soldiers that had guarded Peter when he examined them and ordered uh, that they should be put to death, um, this this is called the Justinian Code. And I don't think you care. Um, I didn't know this either. This is what I read this week, and I thought it was interesting. It is the Justinian Code that when a Roman soldier or a guard or a sentry who was put in charge of a prisoner, and that prisoner uh, was uh, let let go or escaped or somehow... um, evaded uh, the sentries or the guards. Uh, The Justinian Code says that that Roman guard gets the same punishment that was intended for that prisoner. This kind of gives us insight when we get to, I think, Acts 16 with, uh, with Paul and Silas and Philippi, and they're in the Philippian jail. And you remember, Paul and Silas are singing and they're praising and they're worshiping in the jail. And then all of a sudden, what happens? There's this great earthquake, and it rattles every prison door 
So much so that they're torn off their foundations and all the gates open and every prisoner can go free. And immediately the verse says that the jailer tried to kill himself as a result. And Paul intervenes and he says, don't harm yourself, we're all here. That jailer was fulfilling the Justinian code and just trying to get ahead of the curve, right? Before they catch him, before they examine him, I'll just take care of it myself. And, And Paul intervenes. And it says that that jailer took them home at that hour uh, and cleaned up their wounds and heard the gospel in there. And his entire household was saved when they heard the gospel and responded to it. This is part of this protocol. Verse 20, uh, we find this episode for Herod as well, that he's angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. That's Phoenicia. Uh, it's a coastal country. And, uh, and, and in that, they had a port, and they had a long-established trade through the seas. And so Israel, where Agrippa was king, uh, supplied food and encouraged commerce through Phoenician ports, through Tyre and Sidon. But at some point, that there was a disagreement, and so they needed peace. This is what was taking place here. And so on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and he delivered an oration to them. And, and as a way of making peace, surely not because they believed Herod was a god, but they shouted out, this is the voice of a god. And because he didn't give God, god glory, he says he was eaten by worms. That's a, that's a weird phrase, right? I struggle with this. I have so many questions, right? Is this a euphemism for death? Did a worm come out of his... I don't want to get gruesome, but did he get eaten by worm right there on stage? Is this literal? Was this immediate? Well, the historian Josephus recounts this event in great detail. When we visited Caesarea and we went into the amphitheater, it's an enormous place, and I didn't notice know this at all. This is so common sense, and you might think I'm dumb, which is okay, you can think that. Uh, but I didn't realize this, but, but they didn't have artificial light, and so anytime there was a meeting, it happened oftentimes in the morning. Um, if there was a play, all the theater, all the... Um, Uh, concerts, any public performance happened early in the morning. All the artists would be up all night, paint and makeup and uh, props and costumes and hair and everything that went into anything like that. All the preparation was made overnight and then everybody came and started their day because the weather was cool, the lighting was right. And so in the morning, Josephus recounts that Herod on this particular day put on a robe made of silver, woven with silver. And as it, he gave his oration, uh, the sun hit him and it began to glimmer and shine. And so there was this moment where he heard, this is the voice of a God and not a man. And the Lord struck him down. <clears throat> Those who oppose the Lord lose. When they oppose His kingdom, they lose. When they oppose truth, they eventually lose. John Piper sums up this chapter chapter saying that uh, to oppose Jesus is to lose ultimately. Herod knew this, experienced this. God is jealous for His glory and He will not share it with another. Anytime Paul... And Barnabas went into a city 
You remember uh, they went into a city and, and they healed a man. And as they went in, the people said, this is Zeus and Hermes. And they ran over to worship them. And Paul and <clears throat> Barnabas tore their robes and said, "Don't we're just men. And this is the response of godly men and women who know the Lord is to not receive glory for anything that God has done through them or in their life. But Herod took all the glory. And so he was executed because God will not share his glory. Let's go back to <clears throat> verse 3. Herod saw that it pleased the Jews. That phrase struck me. It pleased them. All those opposed to the church and the expansion of the kingdom of God and Christianity, they were happy. They were joyful when James was killed. Which James are we talking about? This is James, the brother of John. Uh, Jesus had uh, 120 or so disciples. Twelve he designated as apostles. And of those twelve apostles, he had an inner three. They are Peter, James, and John. James and John are labeled as the sons of Zebedee. And you remember an episode when Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem. What did uh, James and John's mother say? <clears throat> when you come into your kingdom, will you, will you put my sons on your right and left? In Mark 12. And it says the others were indignant. How dare you ask your mom to ask Jesus to make you right and left? And what about the other ten of us, right? They were all furious at these two guys who seemed to be in on it. And Jesus said, are you able to drink the cup I drink? And they said, yeah. And what happened? In Acts 12, James drinks the cup that Jesus drank. He's executed for his faith. John lived to a long life, <clears throat> dying on the island of Patmos after writing Revelation. But this is that James, not James the brother of Jesus, who was the head of the Jerusalem church. And he was also the one that uh, wrote the book of James that we know. So when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, uh, he proceeded to arrest Peter. Uh, Peter was saved really because it was the Passover feast. And, and you know from Jesus' trial that they weren't allowed to execute prisoners around the Passover. So they, they just held him in jail for a few days. They seized him, put him in prison, and brought him out. But the church was earnestly praying for him. And on the very night... After Passover, apparently Herod was going to bring him out on that night. We see Peter sleeping between two soldiers, and, and um, the angel comes in and wakes Peter up, knocking him on the ribs, and the chains fall off, and the, the two guards next to him, his feet would have been chained to their feet, his arms would have been chained to their arms, and they would have been snugged up right next to him. Um, in this jail cell while two others were at the door. It says that Herod put four squadrons, four, four groups of four. They each took a watch of the night. So every three hours, a new squad would come in. Four would chain him up. Two would chain him up, and two would stand at the door. And so in the middle of this, in the middle of this nighttime uh, experience, the angel comes in, bright lights, angel. No one sees him except for... Peter, and it takes Peter a minute right, to wake up, and he thinks he's having a vision. And the angel 
taps him and then and the chains fall off and he, uh, he starts going through gate after gate beyond centuries and, uh, through an iron gate and Peter just thinks he's dreaming and and the angel uh, says um, <clears throat> uh, wrap your cloak around you and follow me and he leads him out and then at the end verse 11 says Peter came to himself and he said now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. You get a sense that Peter is kind of marveling at this. And, and I want you to understand that it's probably hard to make Peter marvel at anything, right? I mean, for the previous three or for the ministry of Jesus, three years of Jesus' ministry, he saw miracle after miracle after miracle, withered hands stretched out and blind eyes seeing and deaf ears unplugged and a handful of bread feeding 15,000 people at different times. Peter walked on water, right? Probably hard to shock Peter. Uh, the transfiguration, he saw Jesus transfigured. Uh, he also saw Moses and Elijah and he heard the voice of God. I, I, once you've done that, I think you've, like, you've pretty much capped out on mountaintop experiences. Don't you think? I mean, if that happened to you, it's like, Oh, of course, this angel walked in and led me out. But now he's marveling at this event. I think of all the miracles that happened to Peter, maybe his own forgiveness and restoration after failure might have been the greatest marvel to him of all. Have you ever just marveled at the grace of God, how he could save a sinner like me? Um. Peter marvels, though, at the deliverance of God. In verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Mark is continuing to make uh, appearances all throughout Acts. Uh, Many were gathered, they were praying. When he knocked at the door, this almost comedic event happens um, where Rhoda comes and hears Peter, and she hears the prayers for Peter. And in her excitement, she just leaves the gate closed, right? And Peter is on the run, right? He's, in his mind, there are four centuries and Roman, they're searching the streets. And so he's just, no, you know, please open the door. And she hears his voice and she turns around and runs back to the church. Hey, Peter's here. Ah, it's not Peter. It's just an angel, right? They, they, they dismiss her and you're crazy. You're out of your mind. And, and, and she keeps persisting. And so it's just a kind of a comical scene. <clears throat> and then we see that the Word of God increases and multiplied. It's just kind of a footnote to this chapter, verses 24 and 25. Instead of Herod's plan to stamp out Christianity, to destroy Christianity by cutting off the heads of its leadership, they tried to kill Jesus. didn't work so well. Tried to kill Stephen. didn't work. Uh, Saul becomes... The martyr dies and Saul becomes the greatest missionary the church has ever known. You kill the leadership and, and the kingdom of God continues to thrive. So the word of God increases and multiply and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had donated, uh, given the gift that the church had sent from Antioch that we talked about last week. And they bring back uh, Mark with them. Let me give us uh, three action conclusion points for you to put into practice. Because it's easy to read a story like this and even to say, ah, this is all Bible stuff and miracles and angels and prisons and chains. And that's all stuff that's good and well for uh, people who are weak-minded and kind of need stories like this to give them hope. And 
if that's you and there's some skepticism and some cynical, that's okay. I've been there before. Um, Many of the greatest opponents who have tried to disprove Christianity and Scripture often get converted, so we welcome your challenges. <laughs> um, but it's easy to put this, even as a believer, if maybe you put your faith in Jesus, it's easy for you to see something like this and, um, and to think, well, that's still the days of Acts. And, and does God, is there anything I can take from this that applies to me today? Will, if I'm in jail, will my chains be released what, what can we do with this today? Let me give you three things if you're taking notes. Number one, <clears throat> I just found it fascinating. I couldn't let this point go. Uh, there's many points I could make, but I'm going to leave some meat on the bone. <clears throat> but I found it fascinating the more I meditated on this passage this week. And the point is this. Number one, find peace in Jesus Christ alone. Find peace in Jesus Christ alone. And I found that because Peter, on the heels of his good friend James being executed, beheaded with the sword, how did Peter respond? Peter's sleeping. Peter's sleeping between two soldiers. And under those circumstances, you would think that he would be nervously shaking in his chains or crying, or sobbing, or angry, or pleading his case, or on his knees in prayer, or crying out to God and as Jesus' sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. You would think that, that Peter's response would have been different. But somehow, somehow on the heels of the execution of his friend James, Peter has made his peace with God in such a way that he has no fear of this. This doesn't bother him one bit. As a matter of fact, it would be years before Peter uh, dies. And when Peter dies, rather than expressing fear of death, church history tells us that when they went to execute him by crucifixion, he asked to be crucified upside down. A longer, slower, more torturous way of death. Peter embraced what Paul refers to as to live is Christ, but to die is gain. There's something about the way believers die that says something about their Savior who died and rose again. And that something can't even be taken away under the threat of beheading or execution or crucifixion upside down that you can find peace with God through Jesus Christ. This really set, uh, came home to me uh, Friday. I had this weird experience this week. I, was, I had this trip planned for uh, months to go to Oklahoma City, to go to Dallas for meetings, and then to take a quick trip up to Oklahoma City just to visit my daughter a month before she graduates at Shawnee and Oklahoma Baptist University. And on the way up there, uh, I'm, I'm, there's a storm ahead of me, and I'm, I'm seeing these lightning flashes Ten a second. I mean, just flashing everywhere. And I didn't realize it, but that's the same tornado system that hit my daughter's school and her campus and blew out the windows of her car. And thankfully, no one was injured on campus and, and no fatalities. Three fatalities um, uh, in a city called Cole, a city, a village, a town, um, uh, 40 or so miles away from Shawnee. But So my plans were totally shifted and I went into 
dad mode, right? And do I get on the highway now and go out there? But when we heard her voice and knew she was safe, I went out first thing in the morning and went to try to help her and just had a weird 15 hours of sort of tornado and car and fixing and dorm and all all the stuff that went into all that. And so the next day, my plan had been all along, I'm going to get there, I'm going to see her, we're going to have breakfast, visit with her for a few hours, see my mom, and then I'm going to put in like six hours of sermon prep. (laughs) And I'm really going to just like dial in this message for today. And it just didn't happen. The Lord laughed at my plans, all right? Has he ever done that for you? Uh, So the next day I'm on my way and I've got a meeting that I've got to get to and and I'm I've got a three-hour drive ahead of me, and so on the way, I just think, I just need one hour. And my mind was frantic, and I was still kind of recovering. And So I got to this place called Turner Falls, and I paid the $8 entry fee into the park, and it's got 30 miles of trails through a really beautiful stream, and cabins, and hiking, and just a gorgeous scene. So I hiked around and walked for about an hour or so, and just struggled to pray. Have you ever had, you just want to pray and then you, you can't? Um, tried to read some scripture, but couldn't. Tried to focus on my sermon, but it, I, just, I just couldn't get it together. And it dawned on me as uh, the last few minutes of that time together, sitting on this park bench in, in this scenic streamside place, that, Lord, I just confessed that I'm in the most peaceful, beautiful place on this stretch of highway that I could imagine, and, and yet... Everything's good. My daughter's safe, and my, I've got a car, and I've got a provision, and all these things, and yet, I, just, I don't have peace right now. And this point was made to me that your peace does not depend on your environment or your circumstances. Your peace depends on a person and your relationship with Him. You could be in Banff, right? on a glassy lake with the mountains, the beautiful Canadian Rockies around you. You could be uh, on a beach in the Caribbean with a drink in your hand and sand in your toes. All those things. I don't want to paint a picture that makes you not want to be here right now because I want you to be here right now. But, but the point is you could be anywhere else and, and inside be just churning with anxiety, fear, worry, distress. And you could be in Afghanistan, in prison, in a war, in Russia, in Ukraine. You could could be anywhere and with Jesus Christ have total peace and contentment. Some of you don't know that. You don't know that feeling, but you know what it feels like to be filled with anxiety, fear, and worry, and trying to grab the next thing that's going to make meaning for you, and trying to accomplish something that's going to bring some sort of peace. But, but until you know Jesus, you will not know this peace that you can sleep soundly between two soldiers chained up, ready to be executed in the morning. Find peace in Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for you so that you may have peace with God. In order to receive that, all you have to do is repent of your sins and trust in Jesus and surrender to Him. We sang, I surrender all. and That's what it means. To surrender. To have that kind of peace. The second application point I want you to see is a difficult one maybe for believers. That is to make peace with God's sovereign and specific will for your life. Make peace with God's sovereign and specific will for your life. Two different people in this chapter, two different conclusions. Peter delivered, 
Walks out of a prison, free man to live a, a long and ministry fruitful life. James killed. Same church, same people probably praying, same house, maybe even the same group of people. James is killed violently. Peter's miraculously delivered. We often struggle with the sovereign will of God for our lives, especially when we compare it to others. You ever compare your life to somebody else? And you think, oh, if I only had what he had, or if I only had what she has, if I only had this, if I only had that. Comparison is the thief of joy. It robs you of any gratitude or delight that you might experience. We each walk with God along a path that He's ordained. Tom Schreiner calls this the inscrutable sovereignty of God, that God's ways are fathomless. Fathomless. He, he says we cannot comprehend His ways. He describes it this way. He says sometimes a believer suffers terribly, and another time God might deliver them miraculously. We just can't predict His ways. Schreiner writes, sometimes those who would be great parents can't have biological children. Sometimes those who are terrible parents keep having babies. Sometimes God answers prayer for healing and sometimes He doesn't. Sometimes the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer. And this, this bothers us if, if we're honest with ourselves. But we can come to grips and to peace with God's specific sovereign will for each of your individual lives. Especially as you remove this temptation for comparison. So you might perceive from the outside that someone's life is better than yours. But you have no idea the burdens that they bear. I've often had people say, oh, you don't... You don't really look like a pastor. You're not really as far along. You still have some rough edges. Uh, and I said, well, you don't know my starting line. <laughs> you might think I should be up here, but, but you don't know where I started from. And I know where the Lord took me from. And this is my Ebenezer, and this far has He brought me, and no further. And I may not be where you want me to be, but I'm where the King wants me to be. But you might perceive from the outside that someone's life is better and that God is unfair by not giving you what He's given to others. But you have no idea what they're dealing with. The doubts, the anxiety, the struggles. I read statistically that between 15 and 25% of women within the church regularly experience abuse. Verbal, violent, sexual, emotional, or otherwise. You might think somebody here has a perfect life without realizing that her husband is wicked to her. You see him here today and he's buttoned up and polished up and God bless you brother and God bless this and amen to that and quoting scripture left and right. But without any understanding of what, what they're going through or a man who has doubts, no assurance of his salvation, feeling inadequate as a parent or as a husband or in his career, setback after setback. See, each of us have what God has called us to do and how we're supposed to live and, and His path and His promise and His will for you is different than it is for somebody else. And so you do yourself no good when you compare yourself to others. 
The heart of a man plants his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 16.9 says, Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. It might be easy to look at these two apostles and think that James got a raw deal. Well, Peter, but I think James came out ahead. The moment his head hit the ground, he was in the presence of Jesus. And he has a special place as a martyr in heaven. It's not healthy for you to compare. It's more healthy for you to say, make peace with God's sovereign purpose for your life. He's got you where He wants you for a purpose. And the last thing I'll say, the first two things, make peace with God. You'll never find peace but through Jesus Christ. Number two, make peace with God's sovereign and specific will for your life and run your race. And the third thing is, let this passage reinforce your confidence that God can do anything that He desires. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, He can just do whatever He wants. Peter's escape is undeniably miraculous. Herod, the king, he's the one who had all the earthly power, all the earthly authority he needed to arrest, hold, kill James, Peter, anybody he wanted to. He did everything necessary to carry out his plan. He probably even went a little bit too far to assign four squads of soldiers to guard Peter in the prison. Shackled up, chained up, and yet nothing is too difficult for God. He's never in a bind. He's never pacing. He's never out of control. He's never blindsided or stuck. He never is under pressure. His omniscience and His omnipotence are operating perfectly at all times of the day and night in every situation, in every person's life, in the universe. And this is both good news and bad news, right? And this is, I mean, let's just be real about it. It's good news when God operates in a way that you particularly personally benefit from. Right? That's what we call a bottom-up view of God. When everything's good for you, your relationships are good, your finances are good, your career's good, your health is good. When everything's good, praise God. I'm blessed, right? We love it when things go our way. And God is so good all the time, right? We say, but it's particularly good when everything's good for me. Sorry for you if it's not, but man, it's good news for me. But, but I've been through times when it's harder news or bad news when you have one of those prayers that you realize, I know you're capable of delivering me from this, but you just choose not to. Oh, man. I remember mowing my yard like eight times in a row, just having this fight with God. I'm sure my kids looked at it, why does he keep mowing the yard? He's not going to get any shorter. <laughs> but I was having this particular fight with the Lord where... I'm saying to him over and over again, I, I know you can deliver me from these circumstances. It's not, a, it's not a matter of your power. It's the fact that you choose not to that hurts the most right now. That's, that's painful when God doesn't answer your prayer the way you want Him to, and yet you have to say, though He slay me, yet will I what? Yes, shall I praise Him. It's good and bad news. But when you come to peace with God through Jesus Christ, and when you come to grips and peace with the fact that God is sovereign over your life, and that He can make something beautiful out of something really ugly 
in the light and momentary affliction or the trials that He gives you that you're supposed to count it all joy, right? Sometimes you don't count it joy and you, you count it as grumbling. And Yet God can do something beautiful with that. It reminds us that our greatest hope is the resurrection from the dead. Our greatest hope is not a bigger pay raise or a better car or a better house or a better relationship or a better... That's not what Jesus saved us for. He promised persecution and difficulty in this world. And so our greatest hope is not health, wealth, and happiness and your best life now and all that stuff. Our greatest hope is Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead. Paul said if, if we believe in that for this life only, then we're of all men to be the most pitied. You should feel sorry for us if you're here today and you're not a believer. And sweet, God bless their heart. Sweet Christians that think Jesus is alive. Right? Our greatest hope is that He is alive. And no matter what happens to us in this life, and no matter how many trials we go through or difficulties, we, we can rest in this. That God is able to deliver us from any and all circumstances. And ultimately will from death. But in the words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But even if He doesn't, we're not going to bow to your idols. Father, thank You for Your Word today. I pray that it lands for somebody who particularly needs to hear, hear it. Whether they, they don't know You yet, or whether they are experiencing some sort of trial or difficulty, or maybe their faith has just grown cold and they're on the verge of deconstructing or something like that. I pray that their faith, that you would hold them, that nothing can snatch them out of your hand, and that you will see them through this trial. As Psalm 23 leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, and we fear no evil. I pray that we would experience peace with you rather than anxiety in the midst of our circumstances and trials and difficulties. And for those who have gone through that, thank you that they're here. You brought them here so that they can encourage those who are about to go through it or, or who are in the middle of it. I read an article this morning, Lord, that said um, the best time to be at church is when you don't feel like it. Because you meet with people who have been where you are and can help you through it or who are going through what you're going through and can help you and, and lock arms with you while you're going through it or are about to go through it and, and you can help them as well. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you that you've assembled us in this way. Help us not to forsake the gathering of the body of believers. And may we find peace in you that doesn't depend on circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen.